You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Hello, yoga teacher. Today's episode is the last of a three-part series on yoga and pain science. My guest for today, Marlissa Sullivan, is a physical therapist and yoga therapist. She is an assistant professor in yoga therapy and integrative health sciences at Maryland University of Integrative Health. She holds an adjunct position at Emory University, where she teaches the integration of yoga and mindfulness into physical therapy practice in the DPT program. Her research interests focus on defining the framework and explanatory model for yoga therapy based on philosophical and neurophysiological perspectives. She is the author, along with Neil Pearson and Shelley Prosco, of the recently published book, Yoga and Science in Pain Care. At the very end of this episode, I'll share with you how you can enter to win a copy of Yoga and Science in Pain Care. With that, let's dive into the conversation on philosophical and neurophysiological perspectives for people in pain with Marlissa Sullivan. Marlisa, welcome to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Thank you. I would love to start with a brief overview of how you got into yoga and how you got into pain science. Um, well, I got into yoga when I was in college. I uh, was studying medical anthropology, and I was beginning to be interested in healing, and that led me to yoga. Um, and then through my, uh, and I did yoga at my house, and I found a yoga teacher. Um, and then I found my way to physical therapy. And once I became a physical therapist, I continued to practice yoga as well as to um, be, do different trainings. And my interest in yoga was really always this intersection of how our beliefs and spirituality impact our ideas on health and pain. And when did you get introduced to yoga philosophy? Pretty much from the beginning, because my first yoga teacher was um, uh, a yoga therapist as well. She had done Phoenix Rising yoga therapy as well as integrative yoga therapy. And our practices were very much um, meditation and philosophy based. And then I started reading the, the text pretty early on because that's really the side of it I was interested in. How does yoga philosophy relate to pain care? Can you tell us a little bit about the framework that it offers us for working with people in pain? Yeah, one of the things I, I love about the new science of pain science is that when you look at that side by side with the philosophy of yoga, you can really understand how yoga is providing a much needed perspective on pain. So, you know, yoga philosophy and the perspective in and of itself is about helping someone to identify the sources of suffering and pain and the practices to help for its alleviation. So it really provides for this very clear methodology for the person to inquire into and discover how they're relating to their body, their mind, their life, and look at their habits, and then how to create change in the way they're relating to sensation, which pain science is also beginning to uh, really look at that. Like, I know that Neil and Shelley have been on and talking about the sensitization of the nervous system and things like body image distortion and all the things we're learning about how uh, the brain interprets sensation and the experience of pain. 
Um, and yoga really provides the philosophy, the perspective, and the practices to give people practical ideas for how to really create this shift and how they're understanding sensation and relating to sensation. We have these different languages. We have these different frameworks and these different languages for talking about pain. And can you share your thoughts about using the scientific language and the yoga language and when each are appropriate and why each are helpful? Yeah, I think the scientific language is important for um, really, I would say, two main things. One is for us to, us as yoga therapists and yoga teachers, to express to the public, to healthcare professionals, policymakers, health insurance payers, those kinds of things, researchers, what yoga really is. Otherwise, yoga becomes practiced in a biomedical way, in a very reductionistic way, and we lose a lot of its potency and a lot of its uniqueness. So for example, you know, there's nothing wrong with me as a physical therapist taking a few of the practices and applying them within my PT framework. However, that's not yoga therapy. Yoga therapy is when I'm really using the tools of yoga within its own um, ancient wisdom tradition and that philosophical context. So I think using the language of science allows the medical professional, the public researchers to see that yoga actually has its own distinct framework that can be understood in scientific language. Um, so they can really, and so, so when we talk about these two frameworks I often use, eudaimonic well-being and polyvagal theory, they have some hard science behind them for the outside of the yoga community to really understand and to make tangible what yoga is. The other thing I think science gives us as yoga therapists to benefit us is through the study of how the practices work and how the philosophy works, um, we're able to apply the practices in a more efficient way. So we begin to understand, oh, we thought the practice worked this way, um, but we realize that that's not really the effect. So for an example of that, like shoulder stand is a fine posture. However, it's not really safe for many bodies. So once we come out of this idea of, the, of shoulder stand having some magical properties and we realize it's really about inversions, then we can find other postures and ways to get the same effect. Um, so by understanding the science underneath the postures, we're able to apply them to, very, to many different populations. But I also think keeping rooted in our yoga language allows us to always come back to, this is an ancient philosophy, a wisdom tradition, and to always have res this respect for how the practices are applied within that framework. I'm curious if using the scientific language might inadvertently lead us towards reductionistic thinking. I think it can if we use it, uh, if we don't use it carefully. So I think using uh, the scientific language in a way that is always towards that holism. So, um, so the, the, my favorite framework is really eudaimonic well-being because that allows you to innately and inherently understand yoga as a spiritual philosophical tradition and that the practices are oriented towards that. Or even when we, when we talk about polyvagal theory, um, that also can allow, if we just talk about autonomic regulation, that can become very reductionistic. But if we talk about polyvagal theory, which includes um, things like behavior, emotion, um, physiology, all synchronistically, then it becomes less reductionistic. So I think really looking at those sciences that help us look at something in a more integrated, holistic way. If we come back to this idea of there being two languages, 
what it seems like is if we can translate yoga to science, that's probably positive. But if we try to, if we try too hard to translate science to yoga, that's, I think, where things can get murkier. Do you agree? Yeah, and I think it's about like having to, to understand we're really showing how they reflect in one another to create um, a language for one another to understand. So, you know, the, the moment we try to say, well, oh, this scientific thing is this yoga thing, then we diminish both. But instead, if we look at how the, this scientific principle is reflected in this yoga philosophy or idea, then we're looking at more um, reflections and congruencies or parallels versus like these are the exact same thing. That's a pretty subtle difference. Yeah. <laughs> For most of us, it would take a lot of study and reflection and awareness to even be able to, um, to see the distinction in ourselves and our own tendencies. I think it's, it's a very common practice to oversimplify when we teach and, and, you know, there's only so much, oh, by the way, I'm oversimplifying it here that you can, that you can say. So over time, especially with the type of training that yoga teachers get, which is a little bit more broad and not so in depth. So I'm curious what, how can we as yoga teachers be responsible in our relationship to science and to trying to communicate the benefits of yoga to people who have a different framework from us, aren't automatically bought into the yoga framework, and yet make sure that we're not trying to create these direct correlations. So I think as yoga teachers, we can look for high quality sources of information. And that includes like the NIH has um, a website part, as part of it, the NCCIH, that actually lists what yoga has been found to be beneficial for in the evidence. Yogatherapy.health, which is part of IAYT, also has a resource that says something similar. You can look at um, you know, high quality clinics like the Mayo Clinic or Cleveland Clinic, which on their websites will have information about what yoga has been beneficial for. But there's a difference in talking about what yoga is beneficial for physiologically and what yoga therapy is. So we can say like yoga has been found to be really helpful with pain, low back pain. Um, it's been helpful in cancer recovery and cancer care. There's evidence to show it has benefit to arthritis and all of these other different conditions. However, that's not really speaking to how yoga therapy is different than physical therapy or psychotherapy or massage therapy. So both, I think, speaking to the physiological benefit is important for people to know, but then it's also important to know how yoga does that as a distinct and unique profession. Great. How is that? So eudaimonia is a um, concept from Aristotle that talks about living a well-lived life or a flourishing life, to be living to one's highest potential. Um, eudaimonic well-being is a concept used in research that's based off that. So in Aristotle's terminology, eudaimonic happiness was seen as a type of steadfast contentment, while hedonic happiness was a transitory, transitory fluctuating, just liking something. Um, so in the research, eudaimonic well-being is linked to um, the measures of it are meaning and purpose, quality social relationships, greater um, authenticity and personal expressiveness, um, and living in alignment with one's values. And it actually, like, it's been found to have real scientific 
benefit physiologically. So decreased mortality, it alters a gene profile called the conserved transcriptional response to adversity that affects inflammation and immune systems. It also has an effect for pain and decreasing pain medication usage in people with chronic pain. So when we look for scientific concepts like that, that are not reductionistic in and of themselves. So they're looking at a, a philosophical construct and how that philosophical construct has physiological effects. So I think finding those kinds of theories allows us to look at yoga's physiological effect in a reductionistic way, like increasing range of motion and decreasing pain and all those things, but also to look at how it's doing that in an inherently more integrative way by linking to things like meaning and purpose and those things. That's really interesting. I wonder if then the very complexity of yoga, how there's a never-ending amount of things to learn, might actually be part of its therapeutic effect, that you feel like you are studying this system that is so encompassing and meaningful. Yeah, and that um, it is, it's a continual process of self-discovery. It's a continuous process of helping someone to remain curious, to investigate, to improve their relationships with other people. One of the concepts that you know, is very similar to eudaimonic well-being and yoga is the whole idea of dharma. This idea of like living in alignment with our values. And when you really investigate what the word means, it's all about this finding of inner and outer harmony. That when we live in alignment with our values, the yamas and niyamas are doorways into dharma, according to the Mahaparata. And so when we find that alignment within ourselves, um, we are sustaining not only us, but the world around us. So dharma inherently has this connection to this nourishment of our social relationships and their environment. Um, so it naturally allows us to extend from ourselves to others. And is yoga unique, the way that it touches so many different layers of the self? Can you think of any other frameworks that people in pain can use that are similar? I would say that Chinese medicine would have similar frameworks of that. But it, it would. one of the things that yoga has is a very methodological, what sometimes people call in the more neurophysiological research, like top-down and bottom-up that we're doing, we're, we're aligning to body felt sensation and body um, practices as well as mentally cognitive focus or even meta-awareness practices so that we're, we're um, simultaneously engaging in both. I think what you just said is so important, the top down and the bottom up. Perhaps that is something that yoga teachers can bring with them into their classes, into their work with their students is noticing, do I tend to do top down or do I tend to do bottom up? Which one is my bias and can I incorporate a little bit more of the opposite? So can you share a little bit more detail on what that means, top down and bottom up, and some examples of how to approach those? Like a lot of our yoga practice in the West is very bottom up focused, where it's, it's you know, you do this physical practice, there's some pranayama, there's maybe a little bit of meditation or mindfulness, but it's very body-based. So we tend towards seeing yoga in that perspective in, this, in, the, in Western culture or in the U.S., um, although there are lineages that are more top-down. So the top-down lineages will have much more focus on meditation. Um, I think one of the places that we could grow as yoga, as a yoga community, is to really 
help find accessible ways to do that top-down approach. So in a lot of in a lot of yoga therapy, there'll be things like doing journaling on the yamas and niyamas or um, doing journaling on some of the philosophical principles. We do that a bit in yoga classes when we do intention setting. So I think we could improve upon and emphasize those a little bit more. But I also think we could continue to deepen what we mean by bottom up. So while bo- like bottom up isn't necessarily going to a class and having a teacher telling you what to do and then you're doing it, it's also the teacher allowing the student to have that self-awareness process and uh, agency process where they come into their body, feel what's right, and they come into the postures in a way that their inner wisdom is telling them to come into it. So I think we could also improve on our bottom-up ability in that way, like teaching ways for people to um, touch on their inner wisdom to allow the practices, even the physical practices, to stem from that agency and that connection. And I think that, you know, there are movements in yoga doing that. And at the same time, we have a culture where the practices, like you said, are very physical based and then achievement oriented. A lot of yoga teachers will get subtle pressure from their students to teach in a way and get positive feedback from their students to teach in a way that is more directive and goal oriented. So that's a big challenge, I think. Yeah, it is. Living from our values and teaching the yoga that we believe to be authentic within the container of this bigger culture, and then sometimes adding the pressure of trying to make a living teaching. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's a big challenge. I don't know if you have any advice or thoughts about that. Yeah, I think that is a huge challenge. And to find ways to engage that achievement-oriented focus, but in a different way, is really interesting. So to, to allow like the achievement of yoga to be the more you listen to your inner wisdom versus whatever manifestation of a posture. So can you share more about how we can foster eudaimonic well-being through our yoga practice? One is through the yamas and the yamas. So in most yoga lineage and in most yoga texts, they talk about the yamas and the yamas being like the first two limbs of yoga. Um, And we often give a little bit of lip service to it, but I think we could really dive deep into how we approach this with people. In the theory of eudaimonia, when you live in alignment with the virtues, then that's how you find a well-lived, well-purposed life. So in much the same way that the, when we help people, and even to that question about achievement oriented, when we help people to really like contemplate what does ahimsa mean? What does it mean in this moment? What does it mean about how you relate to other people? One of the wonderful things that Aristotle has in his practice is called the golden mean, where you take any value or virtue and you think about it on a continuum from an excess to a deficiency and then the middle. So if you take kind if you take non-harming ahimsa and you look at like what is the deficiency of that what is the excess of that and what is the middle so that we form like people talk a lot about this balance of ahimsa with truthfulness ahimsa with boundaries like there's all these intricacies that come in when you really begin to explore the idea of non-harming the more we bring that into the practice we help people to instead of us saying what it is, they get to self-explore what it means for them, um, how they come to relate to it, how they keep come into contact with it, and so that they learn like their own authentic expression of all these values. So what I'm hearing from you, that in order for us to actually be teaching yoga, we have to acknowledge and incorporate the whole system. 
Dr. Ananda from um, India has this just really, he has this really amazing way of putting it. He calls it um, yogopathy, when we're like applying a practice for a biomedical, physiological, reductionistic thing. And like he says, there's nothing wrong with that. So like if I want to do these five asana because they help balance my back and they help my back feel good, that's great. It's just not yoga therapy. Um, and it's not really the, it's not yoga. It's just using the yoga practices for symptom reduction. Understanding that we're really doing yoga when we are allowing the practices to be seen and understood within their philosophical context. So for example, like, is yoga the best workout for cardiovascular health? Probably not. Like if you want to get cardiovascular workout, then you should go do a cardiovascular workout. And then you should use yoga to do what it was meant for, which is helping you to inquire into the causes of suffering or the causes of disturbance or the causes of pain in your life and the methodology for its alleviation. Um, so when we use the practices towards those things, that's when we're doing yoga. It gets fuzzy here on what's yoga and what's not yoga because when we're talking about this holistic worldview being yoga, that can be applied to anything. It could be applied to going on a walk. Yeah. It's so difficult to define what is yoga and what isn't yoga because to me, a yoga practitioner walks through the world practicing yoga as much as possible, right? That we are attempting to apply this framework to every situation we come across. Mm-hmm. And so it's a little misleading to say, hey, I'm going to the yoga studio to go practice yoga. <laughs> yeah. And then what we end up doing is these asanas, which are lovely. Good, yeah. And like perhaps very meaningful. Sometimes there are teachers who bring a ton of pranayama, meditation, philosophy into those classes so they can feel very sacred. So we're saying that divorcing asana from the greater context isn't exactly yoga. Nothing wrong with it but not exactly yoga. But what about applying the framework to anything else other than asana? Well, what is asana, you know? So if you, you know, if you look at books like The Roots, uh, the Root of Yoga, Roots of Yoga, and Yoga Body, like things like that, really talking about a lot of the postures that we do in yoga classes are in ancient yoga. In books like the Bhagavad Gita, there's no particular asana mentioned. In the Yoga Sutras, there's not a particular asana mentioned. Taking a walk in the woods, but doing it within the framework of yoga is yoga. Sitting with a friend and talking within the framework of yoga is yoga. It's such a beautiful concept, and yet it's so difficult to share that with anybody outside the framework, Mm -hmm. because people think they know what the word yoga means. Mm-hmm. And they they primarily think it means asana. <laughs> like I love asana, you know, and, and I love current asana. I think sun salutations feel great. And I have amazing self-exploration and discovery through them. And, and I really appreciate the practice of it. A lot of the modern asana we do has actually really been an amazing practice for me. I really appreciate it. So it's like when we as yoga teachers are offering a class, you know, people are coming and sometimes they know what they're coming for. Sometimes they don't. They are, in a certain sense, coming for some asana. So in asana, the way that they have seen asana on TV. So we can provide an orientation to movement that is both safe and a method of exploration and a method of self-discovery and a method of connecting to one's personal self. 
So even, you know, when I would uh, teach classes in yoga studios, um, I would often give a few moments at the end for, the pe for people to just say, notice how your body feels in this moment and what is its last movement it, it wants to do. So can the body begin to, can they begin to be guided by the wisdom of the body? So for that hour, hour and a half that you have these people in your class, you have the opportunity for them to like, sure, from a physical level to find more balance and stability and flexibility in their body, which is great. But you're also helping them open a window to how their body offers them wisdom. There, that their body offers them an opportunity to regulate their mood, their body um, offers an opportunity for them to see what feels right, what doesn't feel right. So when we offer things like check in with your body and notice how it feels in this moment, notice does it want to do this variation or this variation? And so instead of saying do this very, even what you were asking about achievement, instead of talking about variations as this is the first level, this is the second level, this is the third level, instead it's like here's all these ways we can play in this posture notice in your body what is the way it wants to play and so we're giving them this like i've heard teachers talk about the yoga mat being kind of like a laboratory where like you're on this little safe space for this hour hour and a half or however long and you're getting an opportunity to dive deep and self-explore to connect to your authentic self to connect to your values to connect to meaning and purpose so that then when you leave this room you remember what that's like you created a little blueprint or a little template of what it's like to have that deep listening and that that self-expression um, that can hopefully carry into the rest of your day that's great advice and it really speaks back to that question about people being kind of goal-oriented and wanting to be told what to do. I also, when I teach studio classes, like to end with some free form time. And that's such a great way to work into it if you feel like you have an audience that's not, you know, because I don't know if you've ever had this, but sometimes you'll offer like some kind of freedom and students will look at you like frozen in fear, yeah. right? Like you're, wait, what? I have to, I have to figure this out. Yeah. So if you think that you're, you know, anybody listening, if you think your audience would be kind of in that space, you can guide them more specifically throughout most of the class. And at the very end, start to condition them to do some of that internal listening. And of course, like through the class, you can be asking them questions to notice things without needing to make a decision around it. Like notice where you feel this in your body. Notice if there's a quality of this feeling. Anything that you can think of to start to wake up those different layers of sensory attention. And then at the very end, that's a, that's a time when they're going to be most receptive to you, most willing to kind of explore, most comfortable, most relaxed. So it's a really great time to, to start to introduce that. And then you can build on that over time. For example, in Warrior Two, press your feet away from you isometrically, which creates a little bit more engagement of the outer line of the body. Draw your feet in isometrically, which creates more engagement of that inner line. Both of them are good. Neither of them are correct. And so like having people just play with both to see what enables their body to feel more open, expansive, their mind to be clear, their mind to be calm. So we're like telling them the kind of qualities we're looking for. And then we're giving an option of which neither is right or wrong to see which one they feel in. And I'll do that similarly with something like a posture like bridge. 
where we want them to engage their glutes, but for some people, they need a stronger glute engagement. For some people, they need a less strong glute engagement. And so teaching them that their glutes can engage from 0% to 100%, there's a range. Um, and that in any posture, there's a range of engagement that they could bring. Um, and for them to use the posture to explore. And like you said, we're, if we can help teach them the qualities. So if you think about like that idea again of bringing something like ahimsa into the, into the whole class um, and teaching them how to apply that in the posture. Like what is that balance of that like golden mean of non-harming within this posture in this moment. So we can, we, they begin to really learn what the body is telling them and what their body has to say. I love that. Great. I'd love to start to wrap back around to the conversation around pain and people in pain and how this type of approach helps people in pain reframe their experience. So in, for people in pain, there's many ways that this has an impact. One is that people in pain often haven't had a sense of agency. That, that's been lost. They've gone to medical professional, to medical professional, to medical professional. They're listening to all these people telling them what to do. And they've lost some of their trust in their body and their own ability to um, take action and to listen to themselves. So I think that allowing someone to come inside their body to determine what's needed, to play with what's needed, and for them to self-select what it is that would be best for them. There's also the aspect that um, people who have more, feel more social support, more connected to others, and who are connected to meaning and purpose have less pain interference. So even though they might feel sensations, they don't um, attach to them in the same way that, in a way that limits their function and activity. Helping people to feel sensation that's arising to begin to interpret in it to interpret it in a different way, and then to still experience a level of equanimity or peacefulness and calmness within their experiences of pain can help to alleviate the pain itself. So, in you know, there's yoga practices like I rest yoga nidra, which really help the person to feel the painful stimuli, to feel opposite stimuli. They begin to feel both of them at the same time. Um, which then allows them to realize, oh, like there's another option. There's an, I can feel a different way in my body. I can feel both pain and no pain in my body. And then ultimately they begin to understand that they begin to loosen some of that contraction around the pain and the pain naturally changes and shifts. And then they also learn how to come into an underlying equanimity within their experience. You used the term pain disruption. And I just want to make sure that I understand what that means. It sounded from the context like pain disruption is the negative effects of pain in your life. Is that right? Or am I? Oh, I think I use pain interference. Oh, pain interference. Yeah. Okay. Uh, um, but, but that's what, yeah, it's, it is. It's, so it's um, the, w- one of the ways that they're measuring pain a lot more right now in um, research is what's called pain interference. Because um, People can have pain and not have it interfere with anything in their life. So much like there's a, the studies that show that like the presence of disc herniations is not correlated to the people who have pain. Like when they do double blind studies and the presence of arthritis is not related to the people who have pain. Beginning to understand that um, it, it's not so much about pain, but it's about how much is it interfering with your function and your ability to do what you want to do in life. 
I feel like this is so profound because it has applications beyond just pain. If you look at any of the obstacles in your life, there's so many times that we're telling ourselves stories that are keeping us stuck and preventing us from living fully, that reframing those stories and getting more agency and having more of a support network allows us to make shifts in all areas of our life, whether we have pain, whether our pain is musculoskeletal, whether our pain is psychological, like whatever it is that feels like suffering to us, all of this information applies. Yeah. And that's what I think is so beautiful about yoga is that it has all of these layers to it. And there is like in in the research on spirituality, like a lot of the effect of spirituality on health conditions is the idea of meaning making or like, you know, being able to reframe, reappraise, um, to, to begin to understand something in a different light. So what's cool about yoga is that it does have this physical practice along with the spiritual practice. Yeah, and one of the one of the things I like about that term eudaimonia is that it, it's kind of like a secular spirituality where it's talking about these principles that are um, within most spiritual traditions, but you could um, apply, if you want to apply a religion to it, you can, but you don't have to. So it, it's taking the root of spirituality, which is things like meaning and purpose, um, quality, social connections, values and virtues, inner connection, transcendental connection, and it's allowing those things to be spoken in a way. So to, I've given that idea and that term to like medical professionals at Grand Rounds, and people are really excited and open to it because it, it allows you to have a discussion outside of religion about topics that are really important to health. If you were to just take the postures of yoga and do the postures for pain, it's fine. But then it's a form of movement exercise and it's a, it's a, or, you know, parts of physical therapy are like that. Whereas what we're doing in yoga therapy is really profound. We're helping people to understand the very roots of their suffering and to cultivate the power to change, to really understand that that's at the root of how we're going to help people in pain. Mm, so beautiful. Well, that, I feel like that's a really lovely place to wrap up. Is there anything else that you really wanted to touch on today that you haven't had a chance to mention or anything that you feel bears repeating? One of the things we did in our book, Yoga and Science and Pain Care, is that we have a lot of different authors who contributed to be to chapters that are more physiologically based, emotion, mental, cognitive based, to the more like compassion and spiritual based. And the idea behind that is that pain is such a multi-layered concept, just as the human experience is really multi-layered. And so there's all these like portals that we have. And so, you know, even though we were talking about yoga teaching and sometimes what that's like in studios today and what people expect and the marketing of it and branding of it and all that, it's whatever portal the person is most open to. And then as, as we approach them through that portal, we can really help to inquire into and discover how to help themselves. So we're doing that in yoga classes as people come and we just offer little bits of, if you came into your body in this moment, what would it be telling you to do? What, it, what would it be asking you for? What is the movement that would most serve you? So we're, we're doing that in our classes every time we give someone a little bit of that agency, a little bit of that permission, and a little bit of that self-discovery. So they 
even like a small bit of that in any class will help someone realize, wow, I found that my body wanted this and then they'll carry that into their lives. Lovely. If any listener wants to find out more about your work or study with you, where's a good place to find you? Um, well, I'm at Maryland University of Integrative Health. My website is integrativeyogastudies.com. So I guess there. Perfect. Thank you so much, Marlisa. What a beautiful closing to this series on pain care. Thank you. As promised, here's how you can enter to win a copy of Yoga and Science in Pain Care. There are actually two ways to win, one using Instagram and the other iTunes. If you have an Instagram account, search for Yoga Teacher Resource if you're not already following me, and all the posts for this series, the three-part series on yoga and pain science, will have specific instructions for how to enter, so you don't have to remember everything I'm about to say. But the basics are follow me, Neil, Marlissa, and Shelly, and then either create your own post about any one of the three episodes or the series, and use the hashtag PainCareYogaGiveaway, or comment on any of the posts that I've already posted about the episode using the same hashtag. If you don't have an Instagram account or you just want an extra chance to win, leave a review for Yoga Teacher Resource on iTunes and email a screenshot of that review to helloyogateacher at gmail.com. Entries need to be submitted by midnight on Tuesday, December 17th. I will choose a winner on Wednesday the 18th. Thank you so much for listening to this very special series on yoga and pain science. I hope it provided some new insight and helpful perspectives on pain, your own pain, that of your students, and the concept of pain itself. 